but um, I did want to share the the newest, the latest um, OMF Canada Heart for Asia magazine has just come out, and I've got a bunch of copies. I'll just put them down here after the service if you want to grab one. Uh, I, I don't know if there's not enough for everyone, but you know, hopefully those who are really interested can come and get one. There's a fascinating story in here. You're celebrating the Lottie Moon um, Missionary Fund uh, uh, drive, and, and of course Lottie Moon is one of those famous uh, missionaries in history who, uh, who did so much in terms of promoting missions within the Baptist Church, but of course she's famous beyond that. And Hudson Taylor is another one of those. And, and in the latest uh, Heart for Asia magazine, there's a fascinating story of how they've just found earlier this year the grave site of James Hudson Taylor. And uh, so it's quite a, 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 an interesting uh, story in how, um, how they're dealing with, with that, that grave site in Hudson and Maria. So if you're interested, uh, just grab one of these afterwards. Uh, it's a great story. And, of course, as OMF, we're preparing to uh, celebrate in uh, just over a year to have a year of celebration because it's the 150th anniversary in 2015 of, of the planting uh, or the beginning, the founding of the China Inland Mission, which later became OMF by uh, the founding by Hudson Taylor. So, and Jamie, his great, great, whatever, how many greats, I don't know, grandson, is going to be here uh, sharing during the year. Uh, Dr. Patrick Fung, uh, the OMF general director, and, and a number of others are going to be in the area. So it will be an exciting time of celebration. Uh, anyway, great story, and so pick it up if you have a chance afterwards. Would you bow with me in prayer as we begin to, as we prepare our hearts to open God's word? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for heroes of the faith um, in the more recent history, recent past, as well as in, in the more ancient times. And we thank you of the story, the various stories, and particularly today as we look at the story of, of Moses and the children of Israel. Um, Open our hearts to, to hear and to grasp what you are saying to us, your people, today. Especially in this Advent season, as we prepare our hearts again for uh, the coming that we uh, experienced so many years ago. And as we anticipate your coming again. So guide us. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Um, I, I have to apologize here. I'm actually going to be reading, and I'm breaking the rules. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's partly because I study from that, um, and in general, it's a bit closer to the original, so it helps me to sort of remember what how the original goes as well. Um, but you're, I know, I think your few Bibles are NIV, and I don't have an NIV, the latest NIV, at least in printed versions. So um, I, I don't have one of those available to me. But hopefully you'll hear the differences, and, and then maybe as we go through it, it'll help you to, to understand some of the differences too. So Exodus 33, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart. 
they're they're at Mount Sinai. Okay, so they're preparing. They've just received the well, the sort of <laughs> the Ten Commandments. They were supposed to receive them. The Lord said to Moses, "Depart from Mount Sinai. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying." To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp for all uh, far off from the camp. And he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, All the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people, every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You'll probably remember about, I think it was about a month and a half ago or so, uh, there was this uh, incident in the, in, down in the United States, but it sort of shook the world a bit because uh, they had a sort of temporary partial shutdown of the government. Remember that? And because of uh, debt problems and disagreements between the, the two main parties there, uh, they couldn't come to any kind of agreement on how to deal with the issue, so it just shut down for a while. A lot of people were out of work, public servants. But what was one of the things I noticed that happened when when that took place is it was a, it was a crisis of sorts, and right during the time that that happened, 
President Obama was scheduled to go to a fairly major trade conference in Asia. But because of the crisis that was taking place in America, he was forced to cancel the Asia trip. And he sent someone else in his place. I think it was John Kerry. A pretty high-level person, but it wasn't the president. And everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people looked at this situation and said, this is desperate. This is not going to work. It's going to be a lose situation for America and possibly for others in Asia. Because without Obama there, that conference is just not the same conference as it would have been. Even though there was someone else of pretty high profile taking his place, it just wasn't the same. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not comparing President Obama with God. Okay? I just want to make that really clear. And it, But as an analogy, as a metaphor here, in an even bigger way, the children of Israel have, if you remember the story, they, they've come out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, crossed the desert, arrived at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on top of the mountain and receives the Ten Words, the Ten Commands, as well as instructions for how to build the sanctuary, the tabernacle of God the place where worship will really happen in the midst of the people. But while Moses is up on top of the mountain, what happened? The people gave up. They felt Moses was gone. And they built their own God. Instead of building a tabernacle, they built a golden calf. And they worshipped, they bowed down at the golden calf. They made a false God, another God, an idol. Moses comes down and is furious and he smashes the tablets, the Ten Commandments. He pleads on behalf of the people before God. God spares them, although there, a plague does come right at the end of chapter 32. And then chapter 33 that we read follows right on from that. God says, okay, Leave Mount Sinai now. Go on. Return or, or go on to the promised land. I promised it. I'll get you there. And I'm going to send uh, someone else with you. An angel. John Kerry's the angel. Just kidding. Now, I'm going to send a, 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 someone else, a substitute in my place. But I'm, I will not go with you. Because if I did, I'd consume you because of your, your stubbornness, your stiff neck. So I won't go with you. And the text tells us when the people heard this, and, and literally the Hebrew is this evil word, this bad word, this disastrous news. When they heard that news, they were crushed. They were desperate. They're devastated. 
and they mourned, and they took off their ornaments, a sign again of their sorrow, and even repentance. Now, why were they so upset? On the one hand, if you think about it, the news that they're given, it isn't all that bad, is it? I mean, an angel's not bad. And and they're going to get to go to the promised land anyway. And they're promised that they're, they're going to defeat their enemies, these, the, the, the people who lived in the land. That's not all bad, is it? I mean, come on. What are they complaining about? It's a compromise, but it's not that bad. But for the people of Israel, for Moses and the people, notice that this was disastrous news. Because even though they would have been able to go to the promised land and an angel was going to accompany them, God was not going with them. And for them, that was just not good enough. That was second best, but it was not good enough. We used to say, I remember when we played uh, in sports, we used to play basketball. I used to play quite a bit of basketball and other things. And, you know, you'd shoot the ball and you'd miss it. And it'd almost go in and it wouldn't go in. You'd say, well, it almost went in. Hey, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't count in anything else, okay? That's the saying we used to have. Because even if it's close and it goes in and out, it's out. You don't get the score. And in this case, second best is a lose for them. They say, this isn't good enough. Second best just won't do. If God is not with us, it's second best and it won't do. Now, what what does it mean that God... God won't be with them because, in a sense, I mean, we talk theologically, right, about God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. And in a sense, that's true. God's general presence is with us. But here we're talking about God dwelling somehow. God, the word that's often used is tabernacling. They took that word tabernacle, the tent, and God tenting right in the midst of his people. And there's a sense of God's special presence with His people in some unique, special way. And that was what they were losing. And that just wouldn't do. And so what happened? Moses goes to the tent of meeting. Now, it's a bit hard to know exactly in the Hebrew what this is referring to. This is verses 7 through 11, the second section of this text. And it tells us that Moses went off to the, to the tent. Now, this is not the tabernacle. This is, although the tabernacle sometimes is referred to as the tent. It's a bit confusing. But obviously there's some other sanctuary set up outside of the camp, far off from the camp, which may be a sign of God's distance, setting himself apart from the people. But it seems to also imply that this was sort of this common practice that Moses would go out to this tent outside of the camp and he would go out and he would 
worship the Lord, and he would cry out to the Lord. He would appeal to the Lord. And everyone, it, it says, who, who sought the Lord would also, as Moses went out, they would wait at their tent doors, and they would look, and they would seek the Lord at, the, at this tent. Moses went inside. He saw the Lord face to face. But the other people who really sought the Lord would, would also go out, and they would seek him. Now, what, what's the purpose of this text, this little section here? Well, probably it's partly just to, to leave, because did, did you notice there are, in that last section, in the first section that we looked at, there are signs of God's grace. Even though it's a desperate situation, there are signs of grace in, section, in that part one, uh, verses one to six. There are signs that God will get them to the promised land. Um, and notice how it says at the end of that section that where God says, I'm not going to go with you. Why? It's for your own good. If I went with you, I'd destroy you because of your wickedness and rebellion. So this is for your good and for mine. God says that I don't go with you. But notice, too, how at the end of verse 5 in this text, he leaves the whole situation just a little bit open-ended. There's a, there's a crack in the door. Because he says at the end of verse 5, Take off your ornaments so that I might know what to do with you, Lord. And it's almost like he says, Yeah, I, I need a few minutes. It's like the judge in a case where all the evidence has been presented and then the judge says, Okay, or the judges or whatever, they go out and they deliberate and they say, wait a minute, we need to make a decision. And you're left kind of hanging. Okay, what's going to happen? Is God going to join them or not? He said no, but now there's almost like there's this little bit of hope. Maybe, maybe he will. Just maybe. I need some time, God says. And so this next section gives us a little bit of time to kind of think about it and wonder, okay, what's going to happen? And, and it, it presents the people in, in a pretty positive light. It says even within the Israelites, there were people who really sought the Lord. And it's almost like, God, look, there are people seeking me. And particularly, it puts Moses in this very positive light. Moses is presented as the one who speaks face-to-face -face with God. And because now in the, the section that follows after this one, Moses is going to be directly appealing to God. It gives this sense of what right Moses has to appeal to God. And so, section 3, the last section that we're going to be looking at, verses 12 to 17, we notice here in this part, Moses, after being seen as the man of God, who can talk to God literally face to face, now Moses makes an appeal to God. He cries out to God. He, he pleads with God. Now, what I want you to notice here is just how bold Moses is. He is boldly appealing to God. Look at what he says. Verses 12 and 13 particularly. 
Moses said to the Lord, see. The, the word is literally, it's an imperative. Look here. Take note. God sees. That's pretty bold. To With an imperative. That's a command. He, he commands God, in a sense. Look, God. Wow. And then, another imperative. Now, therefore, verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Literally, the word is, cause me to know your ways. But it's an imperative. Show me your ways. Let me know your ways, God. He commands God. And then, at the end of verse 13 again, Show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too. It's the same word that we started off with. It's literally the word see again. Same word in Hebrew. Look here. Look at this people. Consider too that this nation is your people. Three times he commands the Lord. That's pretty bold. Especially in the Old Testament sense of, of the recognition that this is the Lord Almighty. Commands him. And notice, too, in verse 12, two times, he doesn't come out, we don't, we don't have this distinction in, in the English, but two times he uses the emphatic pronoun you, which you don't have to use in Hebrew. It can be implied in the verb. When you use it, it's for emphasis. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you, it's emphatic in the Hebrew, you have not let me know whom you, you will send with me, yet you have said. And he's, he's deliberately emphatic in that, both those two times. You, God, in the Hebrew, it's very emphatic. Now, he does say please. He does. He literally, there's a little phrase in Hebrew, and two times in verse 13, five found favor, and he's like, please show me. And in verse uh, 18 again, it's not the text we read, please, please show me your glory. So he does say please, but it's this, there's a boldness to the way Moses cries out to the Lord. And what does he cry out for? He insists that God be present with God's people. God be present with God's people. Did you notice there's a little shift? If you go back to verse 1, Notice what it says. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of Egypt. You, Moses, you brought these people up. They're your people. What does Moses say? What does he remind God? Verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, see too, that this nation is your people. God, they're your people. They're not my people. This is your problem. And then down in verse um, 18, no, no, sorry, 16, twice. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, God? 
And again, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people. God, these are your people. Remember that. And be present. And then I want to really narrow, focus down in, in closing here on that, that verse, particularly verse 16. We'll look at a few other verses, but 16. For how shall it known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? We are separate. We are different. We are set apart in some special way, God, from all the other people on the face of the earth. We are a distinct people. Now, how is it that God's people are distinct, set apart from all the other people on the earth? That's a bold claim. How is it? Well, there are a number of ways. One way it is not, obviously, it is not their righteousness, right? They blew that, and they continue to blow it all the time. In fact, we still blow it, okay? Even today, let's admit it, we often blow it as God's people. And so God's special presence and distinction, his sep- our separateness, is not based on our righteousness or holiness. And when we blow it, it's, it's sad, but it's a continual reminder it's not us. What is it that sets them apart? Well, a, a few things come out here. One is knowing God and being known by Him. In verses 12 through 17, the verb to know is used six times. Look at it. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please. And again, literally, it it says, show me your way. But the, the, the Hebrew verb is literally, cause me to know your ways. That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And it goes on, the text goes on, uh, particularly in verse 16 and 17, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And then verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Knowing God and His ways and being known by God, makes God's people distinct. The second thing that comes out here clearly, I won't look at all the the references because of time, but is the sense of finding favor before the Lord. Five times that comes out in this text. You have found favor in my sight. You you, you have found favor. I'm giving my favor to you. The sense of being a people who have found favor in spite of their wickedness. You have found favor in my sight. But finally, and most 
distinctly. In verse 16, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is, is it not in your going with us? God with us. That, that's what sets God's people apart. Now, this idea of being, I, I was struck when I read this. Because that sense of being a distinct people is so incredibly unpopular today for many. That we, God would make some kind of distinction between those who are His people and those who are not. You know, in, in our society today, I sense, you know this better than I do, but... Uh, we're kind of a funny group because on the one hand, we all like to be a little bit different. And I don't see much of it here, but you go a lot of places. You just look at hair color. And people dye their color, their hair, all kinds of colors. And there's this drive to almost be a little bit different or to have hair styles or, or clothing styles that are sort of different, but everyone is still equal and it doesn't matter. You're all exactly the same. And even in our trying to be different, we all are really doing the same thing. I was talking with uh, a man on one of the islands here recently about, and, and we, we bumped into each other. We've seen each other a few times. We were just out for a walk, and we started chatting. We had quite a long conversation. And we started talking about, because when I talk about being a missionary and, and serving overseas and different experiences, he was very interested. But we got to a certain point, and we were in the conversation, and, and then we, he was talking about, you know, well, Muslims, that's great, Jews, Judaism, Hindu, it's all great. And I said, yeah, but you know what? i got to say there's something unique about Jesus. There's something really special and unique. You know what he said to me? He said, I hope you're wrong. He didn't want to hear anything about a unique relationship with God. Now, we need to be careful in this sense because it can come off as, as an extremely arrogant kind of thing. And again, it has nothing to do with us being righteous people. And yet, in some way, God with us creates this, this distinction, this separateness, which is based solely on God's favor with His people. Now, at Advent, of course, we celebrate God with us in an even more special and unique way. Just one quick verse. John 1. Familiar words in the New, from the New Testament where He talks about the coming of the Word made flesh. What does He say in verse 14? Who were, uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word in Greek is literally He pitched His tent. He pitched His tent among us. It's the Word from, from the tent. The idea of a tent and, and pitching that tent. He came, the Word became flesh, and friends, He dwelt in our midst. 
truth is that he continues to dwell with his people. Now, I've left, I've, I've added some uh, um, sort of questions, uh, discussion questions or topics, and I'd encourage you to, to think about those things. You can do them in groups or you can do it on your own or to reflect. But, but what does it mean to you that God is with his people in a special, unique way? But I'd also like you to think about do we put up with second best? Do we care if God is with us? In that special way? Do we experience God's presence in that special way? And if not, what are we doing about it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise and for the fulfillment of that promise, particularly in your Son, Jesus Christ, who was literally Emmanuel, God with We thank you for your presence and the promise of your presence through your spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling with us. Dwell with us, Lord. Help us to never be satisfied with anything less than your special presence. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Make us know you. Show your favor upon us. Go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.